Blog Talk Radio. I was a hard drinking sinner with blood on my hands. I was a hard drinking sinner, a gun in my hands, drinking 40 pounds for dinner. Till I met a big man, and the man said, How do we do? Are you there? Oh, yeah, here I am. 
Sorry. Hello. Hey, sorry. Yeah, I just had dead silence there. How are you doing, Ryan? Oh, sorry. Good. I mean, you know what? It happens to me all the time. I forgot to take myself off mute. Like when the show started, oh. the show goes to <laughs> my microphone goes to mute without me realizing it. So I'm here. I'm sitting here talking for like five, ten minutes, and, not, and no, no one can hear me. So that, that, that's great. But at least we at least we get to hear you. So that's good. <laughs> oh, you gotta love technology. <laughs> it's just one of those days, you know, where it's like, of course, don't take myself off mute. Oh well, we're gonna figure it out. I'm glad you can hear me though now. So are we on? Uh huh. Yes, sir. We are on the air. We've been on the air since awesome. eight o'clock. This I haven't been on the air because I forgot to, I forgot to take myself off mute. <laughs> so we're both getting we're both just getting started. So how how is everything going with you? Fantastic. I'm sitting here at uh, Pacific City on the Oregon coast, staring out at the ocean, and it's just beautiful. I am so jealous of you right now. I'm just I'm sitting here looking at my washing machine. That's my view. It's uh, a great view, let me tell you. Dirty clothes piled up. It's it's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. You got to get out more often, man. Uh, I know, I know. I mean, I've I've I go out, you know, I go out around here, you know, check out the battlefields and uh, all the plantations out here in Virginia yeah. when I get a chance. But you know, I don't have I don't have quite the view you do right now. But you know, it's <laughs> it's all right. I'm I'm glad at least one of us has a good view. So. What can I do for you, sir? Well, uh, I'm kind of a novice when it comes to uh, Bigfoot and Bigfoot research and stuff. How how I want to learn more about it and just kind of pick your brain uh, during during this hour and uh, sure. learn how how did you how did you get? Can you describe how did you get into this the field of uh, big Bigfoot research? Well, it's a, it's an interesting story. Um, I have to tell you, uh, it certainly wasn't uh, my idea. Uh, my my baptism, if you will, into bigfooting uh, happened quite abruptly. In fact, I was not uh, a, a bigfoot enthusiast uh, that you might think. I, I was born and raised here in the Pacific Northwest, and and. Having been so, you you, you don't. Uh, I mean, you have to have your head in the sand not to hear stories of Bigfoot or Sasquatch, if you will. And so, uh, certainly, I had heard about them, but I really had no interest in the subject. I, 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 I just, I, I put it down, uh, wrote it down as, uh, you know, campfire story to to get the kids all scared at night and whatnot, but uh, I really didn't give it any credence. And that kind of changed for me quite uh, abruptly on April 3rd of 1993. Um, At that time, I was a combat engineer 
in the Oregon Army National Guard. And uh, in case your listeners aren't aware, a lot of what we do in the uh, combat engineer unit is uh, involves explosives. And so it was this day, a uh, fairly decent day in April in the Coast Range, fairly rare actually, but uh, we were tasked to go into some uh, private timberland uh, not far from the beachside town of Seaside. And there uh, we had permission by the uh, owners of this timber company to utilize these gravel quarries that they have distributed around their fairly large holdings of, of land. And we would use these gravel quarries as a safe area to uh, set off these charges. And on this particular day, we had three sites that uh, we were exercising different different uh, scenarios and, and different types of explosives. In some cases, C4 plastic explosives. In other cases, ammonium nitrate, just depending on what the particular scenario called for. Um, we had blasted the first two sites uh, earlier in the day, and we had just one left to do, and this would be a cratering charge. Uh, again, at a at a nearby gravel quarry, and these were all at different quarries, mind you. Um, mm -hmm. And so we put, uh, I think, about 250 pounds of ammonium nitrate that we'd been soaking in diesel fuel for several hours prior. We put it into the ground and covered it and, and uh, tamped it down, and, and uh, we uh, primed our charges, and when... We got the word, we set the fuses, and that gives us about an 11-minute window to get out of there and, and get to a safety staging area where we would wait, listen for the explosion, and then go back and check our work. And so we lit the fuses, and we got into our convoy, which consisted of four vehicles. I happened to be a passenger in a Humvee, uh, the second uh, Humvee, and we got in, the, we started uh, heading down toward the safety staging area, and, you know, it was, it was not, like I say, it was a nice day, so I had my, my window rolled down, and I had, uh, I lived in this area, so I I was very familiar with it. I, I hunt and fish in there, and so it was pretty natural for me to be looking about the, the countryside as we were heading down the hill, uh, looking for elk, bear, deer, whatever that might mm -hmm. be out there. And uh, well, I got a little more than, than I bargained for. We came around this corner, a kind of a slow, sweeping right-hand corner, and the second blast site, the one we had detonated perhaps an hour earlier, came into view. And I, I, I'm looking down there at this quarry, and I see these three odd figures standing right out in the open. And by odd, I mean, just, I, just in my head, I did, something didn't, didn't compute. I, my first thought was, what the hell are these people doing down there? Because 
we always have everybody accounted for, and we don't send people out onesie twosie uh, around the area when we're doing this obviously very serious and, and dangerous work. And and so it's like I hardly got the that thought out of my head when I realized that I'm what I was looking at were not people at all. And so what I'm looking at are three individuals standing on two legs standing shoulder to shoulder, facing our direction, watching our convoy come down the, the hill across the ravine from them. And the more I looked at them, I'm like, okay, they're totally black. Um, they're huge. And their legs are too long for a human, they're just disproportionately too long, and as were the arms. Now, the arms have would hang down well below their knees, all three of them. And that didn't uh-huh. make sense. And, and I'm just looking at this going, what the heck? And I realized, you know, they're, they're, they're not wearing clothes. The, the tallest of the three stood in the middle. And I would estimate its height to be about nine feet. And the two either side of it were not short by any stretch of the imagination. They were easily seven feet, I would say. And I'm just trying to trying to take this, you know, make sense of this. You know, there's there's this initial process of kind of denial. You know, yeah, uh, this it got, it's got to be. You know, it can't be what I'm looking at, but you know, you can't unsee it either. So, I'm mm. watching these these three beings, and what was really interesting was while the one, the taller one in the middle, stood there like a statue, didn't even move. The two that were to its left and right were exhibiting this uh, behavior where they were they were shifting their weight from foot to foot and in the process, you know, just kind of rocking side to side, if you will. And mm-hmm. you're watching the, and these long pendulous arms are swinging across below their knees, and those two did this for the entire time I was watching them. And this wasn't some, you know, three to five seconds, something ran across the road. I think it was a Bigfoot kind of deal. I actually got to watch them for, I would say, a full 25 seconds. That doesn't sound like much, but I would uh, suggest you or your audience uh, stare at your watch for 25 seconds, and and especially when I'm seeing what I'm seeing. It seemed like Mm -hmm. an eternity. And finally we rounded this corner, and I just – collapsed back in my seat and and I'm just still you know trying to wrap my head around this uh my head is just spinning with thoughts it's like oh my god these things these things are out there and 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 then the thoughts start filling your head like they've had to been out there the entire time I had been out there hunting and fishing and and I had no idea and that's just I don't know the whole thing was just it's very traumatizing to your to your psyche to see something that just isn't supposed to be, you know. But there they were. So we get down to the staging area, which was not far from where I had lost sight of them. And my first instinct was to jump out of the Humvee and run back up the direction we just came from. I wanted to see them again. And... I got as far as I dared. Again, we have everybody has to be accounted for, and it's not uh-huh. 
acceptable to to be out of sight, you know. So yeah, right I went on. as far as I dared. I stood on my tiptoes. Uh, I had my hand up to my forehead, and I'm trying my darndest to look over, over this little berm that was in front of me, and I, I still just I couldn't couldn't get another view. But while I'm standing there doing that, uh, I hear somebody call out my name, and I look to my right, and here comes Sergeant Martin, and he he saw what I was doing. He goes, "Hey, what are you looking at?" And I said, "Oh, nothing." As I dropped my hand back to my side, and and uh, he kept coming toward me, and and uh, came right up to me, and he looked me right in the face, and he goes, "I don't suppose you saw what I saw down at that second blast site?" And not to be the fool, I said, "I don't know, Jeff. What did you see?" And uh, he went on to say, "I saw three huge hair-covered uh, Bigfoot, I guess." And of course, at that, I'm like, "Oh yeah, yeah, that's what I saw too." You know, you know, it was, and it was kind of uh, nice to have his corroboration uh, to know that somebody else had seen what I had seen, and uh, but I didn't need it to be honest with you because, like I say, I I, I can't unsee what it, what I saw that day, and and uh, so with that. Um, uh, being a traditional guardsman at the time, in other words, we all had nine to five jobs, if you will. Uh, we had trained one week in a month. Uh, and so the next drill would be early May. And as it turned out, we had two more soldiers come forward, independent of each other. And they also uh, admitted to seeing what Jeff and I had seen. So, so it makes that sighting quite unusual just I mean on a number of levels multiple animal sightings uh, when it comes to these uh, beings are pretty rare multiple eyewitnesses uh, are, are also pretty rare and then you consider the activity we were involved in you know we were we were rocking their world you know I mean mm -hmm. we're putting up you know these are huge explosions and they're putting up a mushroom cloud you know thousand feet in the air yeah so i mean that's that's uh this the answer to your question is uh i didn't find bigfoot bigfoot found me yeah i think a lot of times and that seems to be people, how it happens yeah i think a lot of times when people like even what i do paranormal stuff and looking for spirits a lot of times it's it's you find you find it by accident it's just like it's uh like you said, Bigfoot finds you. Uh you happen to look up at the right time or going past the, the, the blast site at the right time or uh you to see him. Maybe it may be maybe if you had come a, a few minutes earlier or a few minutes later, they might not have been there. You know, it's just, exactly. just the right time for you to see him. How, yeah, how far a lot of the, from your a lot of things had to come together to make that happen and it, it just uh, and that's why, you know, Ryan, that's why you know, when I think back about the the odds that I saw what I saw that day, uh, you know, and you're right. It, a few minutes later or a few minutes earlier and they may not have been there. You know, I could have been having a conversation with the uh 
the driver or, or you know, or be looking the other direction and missed it as well. But, you know, so in hindsight, I look at that, I'm like, okay, there's got to be some meaning to this, some purpose to why me. And so that's why I've, uh, you know, I made the decision to go public about it and to research this uh, from every angle I've uh uh, spent a lot of time now out in in the the forest uh, mountains of, of a number of different states uh, looking for evidence. And the truth is, the evidence is out there if you know what to look for. And you know, with that in mind, I just kind of wondered, not not having seen it before, how many times I probably passed right by evidence didn't recognize it as such because I, in my mind, they didn't even exist. So, but yeah, if you go out there and you, and you keep your eyes open and, and you know what to look for, well, you can, uh, you can find the evidence. And, and, uh, in some cases, uh, you can, uh, find these creatures. I, I've, I've only, well, you know, I've had, I should say encounters come in different forms. You might have a visual encounter, which people consider, you know, the ultimate encounter, but you can also have vocalization encounters or audible encounters. Uh, I've heard these things sound off a number of times, and it's just incredible, the volume and the pitch and, and the, the force behind it. Uh, there's nothing else out there that you can attribute it to. It's, it's just uh, they have their own their own sound, their own language, and it's actually quite varied. Uh, another audible thing you you might hear are wood knocks. You know, a lot of people talk about these things, uh, uh, smacking tree limbs against trees when people are in the area, and I've heard that as well. Um, you can have an experience with smell, for instance, because these things are said to put off a very strong odor and on one occasion I did uh, get the opportunity to smell them and frankly uh, I don't care to smell that again but uh, yeah it's uh, you know they're they're very unusual creatures Uh, they they're very elusive and their numbers are quite small and so like I say, you don't find Bigfoot. Generally, Bigfoot finds you, and and that seems to be the case with most of the encounters. It's not people that are out there actively searching for them that that have an encounter, although that it's possible. Uh, it's usually people suddenly realizing that they're being observed by these things, and uh, you know they're curious about us, but they're very. Uh, cautious, I guess, would be the right word. And usually when they uh, figure out that they've been compromised, that, that somebody actually, you know, caught them in the act, if you will, they simply, uh, nine times out of ten, they just turn around and walk off. That seems to be their their MO, if you will. So where what, what would be prime like Bigfoot territory um uh, the Pacific Northwest I've heard like maybe Everglades in Florida 
I guess where people aren't would be the best place for Bigfoot? Well, that's that's pretty well said. Yeah, uh, very remote areas, areas that generally haven't been encroached on, although they have been sighted near neighborhoods and, and uh, rural areas. Uh, and, you know, as mankind encroaches further and further deeper into the into the uh country uh the countryside the forest then uh these things tend to retreat even even to more secluded areas but i don't know if you've ever been to say oregon but we have several different mountain ranges here um i mean right behind me is is the oregon coast range and it is. Uh, it starts at Cape Mendocino, California, and stretches through Oregon and through Washington, right up into the Olympic National Park. Uh, it's a temperate rainforest. Then you go 100 miles inland, and you'll run into the Cascade Mountains, which is where I live, and it's more of a alpine forest, uh, volcanic. Uh, there's a snow-capped. 10,000-foot volcano about every 60 to 80 miles uh, through this mountain range. Um, But between just the coast range and the Cascade range, they they comprise more than 60 million square acres. And I don't care if there are 2,000 of these things out there, 60 million square acres, most of it uninhabited, uh, mm-hmm. gives them plenty of places plenty of places to hide now I have researched in California Oregon Washington Canada Alaska uh, did a little bit of uh, research in Arizona and most recently in Nebraska of all places um, with some very very surprising results uh, this was back in October uh, but you're right Florida seems to have a, a decent population of these. They refer to them as a skunk ape because of the smell they yeah. put off. Yeah, they smell terrible. Yeah. Oh, my God. Very rancid, almost makes you want to vomit kind of smell, which I think is the whole point of it. I think they use that as some sort of a marker or uh, possibly – I think I think they actually can can generate that smell. Uh, we know that uh, gorillas have scent glands that they can uh, activate under certain circumstances. So uh, I think it's their way of letting you know they're there and don't follow me. So are so skunk ape, Sasquatch, Bigfoot, are they all part of the same family, just different subspecies, or do you think? Uh, what 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 are the differences between uh, each region? I know the skunk ape obviously smells, but uh, what are some other telltale differences between a, a Bigfoot in, let's say, Florida and a Bigfoot up in where you are? Well, I don't think there's a lot of difference, but um, when you discuss differences, um, I, I think we're probably talking potentially different subspecies, if you will. Uh, again, that's just speculation. 
But when we look at the distribution globally of sightings of such hairy uh, man, if you will, some of them call them that, um, there's seems to be in in many different parts of the world something similar to what we're dealing with. For instance, the the Yeti in uh, the Himalayas. Um, uh, in Russia, they have the Almas or the Almas tea. Uh, China has a Yaren, which they which is just uh, uh, translates to wild man. We've got the orang pinback in Sumatra, which is about a four to five foot tall version of these. Uh, Australia has the Yowie, and so on. So these there are reports of different ones. And in the case of, for instance, the the Yowie, or the uh, abominable snowman, as it became known, only stands about five feet tall. However, they're they're very huge in terms of body weight and, and strength. Mm-hmm. But what we're dealing with here, full-grown adult, is going to run anywhere from nine feet on up. But as so, to, as to how they're actually related, I I can't you know. Until we actually have uh, some type specimens in hand, it's it's just uh, anybody's guess. So it's funny you're talking about the abominable snowman. I'm thinking about, you know, Rudolph, the show we used to watch when you know we were kids, the Christmas movie. I'm thinking right. about this giant like thing, but it turns out there's only five feet tall. Right. But, uh, <laughs> kind of ruins the image a little bit of uh, this this terrible, you know, beast coming at you. But yeah, I mean, dude, it's, 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 it still throws stuff at you. It's pretty scary. Oh yeah, yeah. It seems like uh, Hollywood and uh, uh, a lot of different advertisers exploit these things and and make turn them out to be mean, uh, scary creatures when that's not necessarily the case. But well, it sells just like any other tires or if, whatever. If they feel threatened. I guess they'll, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll react in that way, but it seems to me like they just want to be left alone. Pretty much, yeah. And just like us, um, you know. well, you know, I, I've done a lot of research into Native American lore on these things, and you know, let's face it, Europeans have been around for roughly you know, 300 years or so, and Native Americans have been here close to 19,000 years. So who do you think's got the most experience with these things? Uh, The Native Americans talk about them all the time, and when you do the research on them, you find that they lived somewhat symbiotically with each other, but they gave each other plenty of, uh, of room. Uh, of course, mm-hmm. there was a whole lot more real estate to go around back then. So, uh, but they would actually mark, uh, name certain areas where these were known to be. And, for instance, uh, if they attached the name Skookum to, uh, say, a, a meadow or or a waterfall or a river, or a butte or a mountain, what have you, any geographical name place that had Skookum attached to it was kind of a do not trespass for the Native Americans. That was places that they just ceded to the to the Bigfoot, and 
you know, it's not that they didn't interact. They most certainly did. Many times Native Americans would actually put out pieces of salmon or, or venison around the outside of their camps to to uh, basically gift to these these creatures in, in, in a way of, you know, don't come into our camp to get our food. Here it is. Here's your share. Yeah. Yeah. Appease them, kind of like you know. Here, here's your stuff. Leave it alone. Yeah, we we have your share of it. You know, don't don't come in here looking. You know, come disturbing Pretty us much. in our camp. You know, you, yeah. You were and talking the other about. thing that I found, the other thing I found fascinating with the Native Americans is uh, the way they describe them, uh, because of course they would. They had references for coyotes and ravens and turtles and you name it. But when it came to these things, they didn't they didn't refer to them as an animal at all. In fact, they considered them uh, a sacred tribe, if you will, a tribe in their own. Uh, they were referred to as the old ones in some cases or uh, what was the other one? The first ones. They would call them the first ones. So what's that tell us? That tells us that they are signifying that these things were on the ground here in North America before they were. And so it was only when they came to, the, to North America that they discovered that there was a tribe there already. And these were very ancient tribes um my best guess really is that what we might be dealing with is a an ancient society um a relic hominid not human but in the human line of of uh, the human genus and uh I think that stands to reason. I just think for whatever reason, when Neanderthal and, and the Denosians, the Dysovanians or Cro-Magnum, when these other ancient humans died off, that these creatures somehow survived. And they exist in the forests and mountains of the United States and Canada. That's that I'm certain. So, they, do you think the Native Americans knew how to communicate with them, and that that has been lost through the years? Um, probably in a in a very rudimentary fashion now there's there have been some recordings made uh i think of the uh, sierra sounds for instance that was recorded by al berry and ron moorhead in the sierras back in the 70s where it seems that at least amongst themselves they may have their own language which may be hard to, to believe but uh I've listened to Ron Moorhead's, uh, the original raw cassette tapes that they used to record these sounds, and 
even what's in the Sierra sounds that have come out on the, on a couple of CDs, uh, there's a whole lot more in there that if you listen to it carefully, you can pick up certain repeated, I don't know, words or phrases that uh, really make you think that they, they do have a language at least between themselves. And I'm sure that there was some form of communication with Native Americans, but uh, whether that still exists, I don't know. Now, could you tell the difference? Like, if uh, you hear a Bigfoot call, could you tell whether it was a female or male, or do they all, you know, if you're, or, you know, are they not that different where you could tell, like, which is which? Well, I I think you can, and and uh, uh, I'll give you an example. When I was in Nebraska on a Indian reservation doing some field research, we had a number of encounters with these things, and I I saw things that I'm again I'm still having a hard time wrapping my head around uh but what I heard were a pretty wide array of vocals uh whoops you know really high pitched whoops you know crescendoing mm-hmm. uh but there was this one that really sticks in my in my brain was uh, a very high pitched uh Whale, if you will, but it changed up in you know throughout this say five second long um, call, and it repeated this four times, and every time it was identical. And I can swear it was a female just because of the very high pitch it had, and it it really sounded like she was singing. Um, I mean, it was almost beautiful to listen to. Uh, and she did that twice uh, on two different occasions. Uh, had to be the same animal, and, and uh, again, it, it just it sounded like a song. It didn't sound like she was afraid of us at all or anything. It was almost like she was welcoming us. But then, conversely, on another day in the middle of, I should say, night in the middle of the night, we were going out in the field from like midnight to two or three in the morning sometimes, uh, there were other uh, sounds that were completely different than this one high-pitched one I'm talking about. Um, There was uh, this native that was with me was talking to them in his native tongue, uh, alternately with English as well. And... uh, at one point, he says, you know, I just, you know, we weren't getting a lot of activity this one night. He goes, you know, I'm going to try something. I haven't done this in a while, but I'm going to I'm going to ask them. I'm going to let tell them that I'm going to pray for them and invite them to join me. And I said, all right, whatever. So he calls out to these, these things. He says, aho, kage, which means hello, friend. He would say, gigaho. Come closer," he said. "I want to, I want to pray for you. I want to pray for you and your family that uh, that you remain safe and and healthy during this pandemic. And 
if you'd like, feel free to come closer and join me in prayer. Well, he gets about a minute and a half into what turned out to be maybe a three-minute prayer. And about a minute and a half into it, from very close, out of the dark, came this very loud whooping sound, if you will. Uh, I'll demonstrate it once. I won't do the whole thing. But anyway, it sounded like this. And it repeated that four times in about, I don't know, eight seconds or so. Kept my head down, and I waited for my friend to finish his prayer. And when he did, I, I look at him, and I'm like, was that them? And he goes, yep. I told you it might work. I also, I also, uh, one time I went out in the daylight to set up a tape recorder, and then walking back to my vehicle, I had uh, six very loud tree knocks, is what I would call them. But it was a very rapid succession. It was just, bam, 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 bam. I went almost that fast and very loud, and. Uh, there's nobody else out there. I'm the only vehicle out there. We're way out in the middle of the movies. So, yeah, they can make a number of different um, vocal sounds. And I, I, in this particular case, I'm I'm certain that I, we were dealing with a female that was doing that sing-song thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Is, are, are, are there certain sounds or certain like like actions that people should be wary of if they hear something like a uh, certain particular yell or maybe a certain tree knock? They should be like, all right, I need to get going because this is a warning that I'm getting too close or uh, I'm, I'm infringing on their territory. I need to back up. Well, yeah, you know. Uh... If you ever hear one, uh, there's no mistaking it for anything else. Um, the the different sounds they can make are very different than any other animal out there. Um, but when it comes to encroaching on their territory, I really believe that the this uh, behavior of uh, tree knocking, if you will, is their way not necessarily to warn us, but I think to warn other of uh, their fellow uh, Bigfoot that humans are in the area. Which is kind of funny because a lot of people taken up this practice of of either going out and picking up a branch and whacking it on trees, or they'll go and and actually make some homemade, you know, knockers, if you will. And they'll go mm-hmm. out there and do that. And I, I really think they're defeating the, their own purpose because if I'm correct in what this tree knocking activity is, is a warning to other Sasquatch that humans are in the area, then they're just, you know, going out there and, and beating them to the punch, you know. I don't think it's helpful, but yeah, I, I think if you heard that, uh, or in one case um, back in 1998, um, I had set up an expedition in 
not far from where I had my sighting in 93, so this is five years later, and I brought with me some seismic ground sensors that will literally detect footsteps, any vibration in the ground, and relay a signal back to our base camp. Um, I was in the process of, of uh, installing those and calibrating them when a hailstorm moved in, and I thought, well, I can go try to make it back to the base camp, which I could see maybe 200 yards away, but I figured I probably wouldn't make it there and avoid the, the hail. So I opted to turn around and go up the mountain a little bit into the heavy old-growth timber and just kind of take shelter under these huge Douglas fir trees. And so while, I, while I'm there, uh, I had to... <clears throat> I had to take a pee, and so I did, and, and so as I'm literally buckling my belt, I was roared at from very, very close, <clears throat> I estimate 70 feet. I was, I from coming from about my 10 o'clock, if you would, and I've still got my hands on my belt buckle. And I'm telling you, this was so loud, and uh, nothing, a bear, cougar, nothing could, could imitate that. It was so loud, you could feel it in your body. And this went on, this was like just a two or three second long, very loud roar. And I'm telling you... <clears throat> I could not move for like two minutes. I did not flinch. I don't even think I blinked. But if there was any sort of message embedded in that roar, it was, I had no doubt that this thing was not happy. And my guess would be it had something to do with me marking its territory. But, uh, yeah. Uh, you hear something like that, definitely go the other way. Yeah, I'd be. I don't know if I someone saw if I saw someone pissing in my yard, I might be, I might I might be pissed off too. I might I might roar, I might yell at them as well. <laughs> like right. Were, <laughs> that's uh that's pretty amazing. Um, you, know, you see all these you, you see these evidence like pictures, uh, videos of people, uh. Bigfoot people putting evidence out there, but a lot of times, um, like the general public likes to, uh, I guess, poo-poo them or put them down. What, what do you think? It's so hard to prove the existence of Bigfoot. Well, it's just like any any other animal out there. You need to be able to have tangible proof. Um, something that can be DNA tested. And, you know, yeah. the truth of the matter is these things, just by observing their behavior, they're very reluctant uh, to uh, mingle with this, if you will. In fact, they, it's just the opposite. And uh, until we actually find some sort of a, uh, a carcass, perhaps, or some bones, uh, that we can do DNA testing on. Um, it's just, uh, and, and that's extremely difficult. 
if you think actually having an if the odds of having an encounter is rare, <clears throat> I imagine the odds of finding a a carcass is even rarer still. Do you but think they bury? Do you think they? Take. Do you think they they hide the bodies or bury the bodies? I don't subscribe to that. I mean, burials, while they're somewhat ceremonial, they're also uh, it, it was also done uh, going back thousands and thousands of years ago, mainly to. Uh, dispose of the body and, and, and not have it uh, spread disease and and whatnot. That a, so traditionally people would bury or burn bodies just because they are known to uh, become a health hazard. But uh, in the case of these, I don't think so. But I do think that when these things do succumb, and they have to, uh, either by old age or disease or injury, there's going to come a point, and, and if you think about it, it's probably the only point in their life that they that they ever consider their own mortality. And we're talking an apex predator that fears nothing and is uh, nothing predates on them. And so it's only when they find themselves in that position that they really have to consider the fact that they're not going to be able to survive very long. And when um, when an apex creature uh, realizes that's the case, I don't think they're just going to flop down in the middle of a trail somewhere. I think more than likely they're going to realize that uh, – in very short order, they're not going to be able to defend themselves, and they may themselves become scavenged upon. And I think they just they look for a, a very secluded place uh, where they can die in relative peace, possibly a, a box canyon or something where they've got some sort of a, a put them in a defensible position anyway. Uh, yeah. That's probably the only time they're vulnerable. And that's, I, I think that is in enough that – and it, it, to explain why well, we're not finding bones. The other thing, too, is that nature is a very efficient recycler. And case in point, I shot this elk one year in a mountainous area, and – it was snowing, and I only had a two-wheel drive truck at the time, and I knew that I had to go up in elevation in order to get out from where I was at, and I didn't want to get stuck. So I did a very field-expedient butcher job, if you will, and a uh, portion of that elk there, I mean, all the bones and everything were still there, so there's probably a couple hundred pounds of meat and bones there. And I went back exactly three weeks to the day to that very spot, and you couldn't tell there was ever an elk there at all. It it took less than three weeks for it to completely disappear. And that's, you know, due to predation and bacteria and weather and, and, and uh, scavengers and, you know, uh, a lot of things go to work on a body once 
they expire. Yeah, I've uh, I've noticed some like animals that have died in on the trails behind the cabin that you know it's full carcass and then come back like two days later and there's nothing there at all. So, uh, yeah, they they it's definitely uh, it's definitely they, def- they nature definitely takes care of definitely t- takes care of its own. Um, yeah, that's true. So we are almost to the end of this show. Um, got like five minutes left. I just want to give you a chance to talk about like where people can find you know, like any of your, your information, how they can follow you, um, what you do. And uh, sure. yeah, I appreciate that. Um, so my wife and I founded a not nonprofit organization uh, called the American Primate Conservancy. And we have a website for that. Um, that can be found at AmericanPrimate.org. And uh, I have an email, of course. I can be uh, contacted directly at AmericanPrimate at AOL.com. Uh, so if anybody has any further questions, feel free to contact me through those two um, sources. I also have, of course, Facebook page just under my name, Todd Neese. I have two others that might interest your audience as well uh, okay. on Facebook. One is called, well, one's the American Primate Conservancy that uh, has its own Facebook page, and the other is called Beachfoot. And just really quickly because I know we're running out of time. Um, Beachfoot is an annual gathering. I, I call it a retreat uh, of Bigfoot researchers from around the world. Um, we hold it annually. It's invitation only. We cap it at 100 participants. And it's basically four days and three nights in a very um, casual camp-like setting. Uh, we've got a private 10-acre campground that we use every year. This year will mark our 14th year uh, to do Beachfoot, and we're getting ready to do it again here in just a couple of months, or excuse me, a couple of weeks, uh, June 24th through 27th to be exact, and uh, it's, uh, it's kind of a labor of love for me because I just, back in 2008, decided what would it be like to get all these you know, powerhouse researchers together and let them get to know each other and share share our work and everything. So, anyway, so there's a there's a Facebook page there as well. And if somebody really wants to get a flavor of of what Beachfoot's about, we have a uh, video on YouTube, and all the person has to do is get on YouTube and search for Beachfoot 10th Anniversary. And I think they'd enjoy it. It gives you a real idea of who's involved and uh, what kind of things we do, and, and, and it's a lot of fun. Well, I'll definitely check it out, and I'll share share that link uh, on my Facebook page as well. Um, I want to thank you for coming on the show and talking about Bigfoot. It's been very um, educational. Um, I'm looking forward to listening to uh, your show coming up next. Uh, I'm going to do a quick uh, break uh, play a song, and then uh, the song's over. We'll start your show. Okay? Sound good? Sounds great. Thanks, Ryan. Perfect. Have a, have a good night.
you as well.
Hey guys, this is Ryan again. Um, just want to welcome everyone to uh, Live in Large Bigfoot in America. I've, I've got Todd Neath and uh, Patrick Byrne on the line here, so I'm going to go ahead and mute myself and uh, put them on right now. Yeah. Yes, good evening, here. ladies and gentlemen. Good evening and welcome to Living Large Bigfoot in America, where we talk about all things Bigfoot. Um, my name is Todd Neese. I'll be your host tonight. Uh, we've got a very special guest tonight uh, that's joined us, a um, gentleman that needs little to no introduction at all. Um, but by way of introduction, I will anyway. Um, Mr. Peter Byrne uh, is a, considered one of the premier pioneer researchers in the field of Bigfoot. Um, I first met Peter back in 1993 when he came to investigate uh, a Bigfoot encounter that I uh, had while working with the military, and uh, we've been friends ever since. We've had opportunities to work in the field, and um, with that, I'd just like to welcome Peter. Peter, are you there? Oh, yes. Peter Byrne, Peter Byrne here. Happy to uh, talk, answer some questions if I can. Well, thank you, buddy. It's good to, good to hear from you. Um, so your your life uh, is really a, a living legend in and of itself. Um, uh, uh, over the years, getting to know you, um, just a fantastic uh, um Life uh, starting out in uh, Dublin, Ireland, I believe, is where you were born. Is that correct? Yes, I was born in, in Dublin, in Southern Ireland, yes. So why don't we kind of pick it up there? Tell us how uh, – I know there's a lot in between, but give us a little bit of your background, if you will, uh, and then uh, we'll talk about how you got involved ultimately in the search for Sasquatch. Um, but there's there's a lot of uh, preliminary things that had to take place for that to happen. So can you just kind of give us a little bit of your background, let's say, uh, from the time that uh, you were serving in the British Royal Air Force during World War II? Yes, okay. I was born in Dublin, Ireland, and... Um, we moved to the country when I was five years old. I was brought up in the Irish countryside, went to the school system there, middle school, high school, um, in this case a boarding school, and came out at the age of 18 and joined the British Air Force and then spent four years in Southeast Asia, uh, air sea rescue, um, air gunner on the Catalina, Catalina airplane. In America here they're called PBYs. So I spent four years there, and then I liked Asia, so I stayed on and uh, um, got employed by a tea company up in North Bengal. Spent four years there in North Bengal in an area of um, tea plantations set in deep jungle with lots of wild animals, rhino, tiger, elephant. Became interested in hunting, moved into the country of Nepal, got a license to open a safari, big game hunting company, and spent 20 years there, during which time... I was approached by, um, I, was in, I went into the Himalaya twice with two small expeditions looking for the Yeti. And then I was approached by a, a Texan, his name was Tom Stick, who said that he would like to project 
a full-scale expedition into the Himalaya, uh, two or three years. So um, we got that going um, in 57, 58, 59. We spent three years up there looking for the Yeti. Then I came down, and he said, uh, would you like to come to America and look for something called the Bigfoot? And this was January 1960. So I came over here and got into the, the search for Bigfoot, the Bigfoot mystery. And I've been in and out of it ever since. Two major projects, one of three and a half years, one of five years, and awful lot of money spent, and certain findings, uh, some books written. So in and out of the Bigfoot thing for over the last uh, 40 years, uh, more, uh, 50 years. So, so that's where we are right now. Well, you and I both know that's the Reader's Digest version, but uh, a lot of things have transpired in between. Um, let's back up a little bit, and uh, I think I just want to recount some of the more interesting stories that uh, you seem to have uh, found yourself in. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about uh, the Penbachi Finger incident? how that came to be um, and, and what became of it? I was in the Himalaya, and my brother and I were moving uh, from area to area, and we came into this area where there was a temple, a place called Pangbochi, and we camped the night there, and one of the lamas of the temple, there were six, came down to talk to us, and he spoke um, Nepalese. The others were all Tibetan, speaking Tibetan. He spoke Nepalese, which I speak, and he said, what are you doing here? I told him, looking for the Yeti. And he said, um, we have a Yeti hand up in the temple. I nearly fell out of my chair. So I said, great, can I see it? So we went out there at night with flashlights, and he showed me this hand. Um, I cabled my sponsors in uh, Texas, we used Indian cable stations. We had to send men running all the way down to the border, 200 miles to send a cable. It took six or seven days to get a reply. And Tom Sick, the main principal sponsor, replied and said, uh, can you come to London? We need to discuss this. It's very important. So I flew to London, and I sat down with Tom and the head of the London Zoo, uh, Dr. Osmond Hill. And I said, he said, can you get this hand? I said, no, they will not part with it. He said, can you get a finger? And I said, possibly, if I can replace it with something. So at this luncheon, in this very elegant restaurant, he produces a brown paper sack and drops a human hand on the table. He said, take that. Take it back to the pole. See if you can replace the finger. Make a long story short, months later, I was back in the pole, in the temple. I took the finger off, what we thought was the Yeti hand, replaced it with a human finger, and then... The next problem was getting it out of Nepal, and we found that one of our interested semi-sponsors was Jimmy Stewart and his wife. They were in Calcutta at the time. I went down to Calcutta, gave Jimmy and his wife the finger, and they took it to London and took it to Dr. Osmond Hill, post-sector of the London Zoo, and he examined it. So that's, that's the story of the finger. And his examination, by the way, in summary said, it's not a human finger. The finger was subsequently lost, Jimmy and his wife died. Uh, Tom Slick died. So it's all in the past. Until recently, about three years ago, the BBC, a young reporter, found the finger and called me and then invited myself and my partner, Kathy Griffin, over to London to see the finger and make a short documentary there. And the finger is still with the BBC. 
and they hope to find somebody to take it back up to the temple in Nepal and give it back to the Lamas there. So that's the story of the Yeti finger. Thank you. That's a fantastic uh, story. And and, uh, just as a side note, um, this gentleman from the BBC, uh, uh, Mr. Matthew Hill, had contacted me, I believe it was in my, uh, excuse me, 2015, and asked me if I knew how to get a hold of Peter and that he had done some research into the whole Penbachi Finger episode and that he had actually located the finger and he wished to talk to Peter about it, about its findings. And uh, I said, well, I could do you one better. We're having a gathering uh, coming up in a few weeks, you know, how would you like to meet with him in person and, and finish your, your story? And uh, sure enough, the BBC ponied up the money to send him here to the States, and uh, it was just fantastic to to have Peter and Mr. Hill together where they, they he interviewed uh, Peter in front of the group about his findings and uh, if I'm not mistaken, now initially he said that it did contain some human DNA, which it was kind of concerning. But now, was uh, correct me if I'm wrong. When you went back to England, uh, my understanding is they took a DNA swab of of uh, of you and uh, compared that to the DNA that they found. And it turns out that the human DNA that they found on that finger was none other than yours. Am I correct? It's rather amusing. After 50 years, they DNA the finger, and they find my DNA on the finger after 50 years, which is incredible. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. So are they? Uh, are, is there any other uh, avenue for them to uh, redress that DNA uh, study and, and perhaps get around the human DNA? No, still the working DNA on that? They, found, they found two sets of DNA. One was mine, and the other was the actual DNA of the finger itself, uh, stating that it was human, that it was a human hand. And is that your presumption? Not my presumption, no. The findings of the BBC using okay. scientists in London I think, um, 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 anyway, to make a long story short, using scientists sure. in London, they did a thorough DNA. They found me, uh, mine on the finger, and also um, declared it to be uh, a human hand and nothing else. Not an ape hand, not an unknown Yeti hand, a human hand. So, I see. Anyway, it was, it was really fantastic to see that, that story. Uh, come full circle some, what, 70-plus years later at, at uh, our, yes. our gathering. Yes, Yeah. So tell us, uh, you're, you're a, a, a well-published author. Um, how many books have you written to date? I've written 20, uh, 20 books, written and published 20 books. Wow. Now some of that has to do with the Bigfoot and, and others uh, have to do with with your life as a hunter, and uh, and uh, one of my favorites uh, is Gone Are the Days, 
which is really kind of a autobiography you wrote, which is just fantastic. And I would encourage anybody if you can even get a copy, you really should do that. It's it's it just reads like a like a movie. Um, so, Peter, of all the time you've spent out in the woods, what would you consider to be some of the best evidence that you've come across? Well, as far as the Bigfoot mystery is concerned, um, footprints. And across the years, I've found, no, seen six sets of footprints, found two or three myself, and then my associates found them and told me, and we looked at them going way back to Northern California in 1960. One time we found 300 footprints on a dusty road. We photographed them, we cast them, and then across the years, another five sets. So um, no sightings, um, no other evidence, no, no um, uh, human, uh, no um, remains of any kind, no bones, no tissue, uh, no feces, and no hair. We saw feces, of course, especially in northern California, many times, huge piles. But it was it was bare. We're pretty sure of that from the contents. So across the years, um, all we have um, is the footprints. My associates, some of them have sightings, like you, but I have not seen one myself. So I've got to kind of lighten this up a little bit, if you don't mind telling the story, because you know it much better than I, but when you were down in Northern California in the 60s doing your research, you recall the the story, since you we were bringing up the uh, subject of of feces or scat you recall the story about um, Bob Titmus and the scat that he had found and was sure it was Bigfoot I find that hilarious do you recall that? Oh, it's kind of a boring story um, <laughs> when I took over the Bigfoot project Tom Sticks in 1957 um, he employed a number of people $300 a month, four or five, six people, I won't mention the names at this time, and their job was to um, do research when they could and report once a month. None of them were reporting. So my job was to go up to Northern California and hire and fire. And I went up there and talked to them one by one. One of them was living in San Francisco, for instance, and, 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 and drawing $300 a month. So I got rid of all of them very nicely and said, you're not producing uh, what you're supposed to produce, a report a month, and uh, put together a new team, completely new team. One of them was Bob Titmus, who was a taxidermist in Reddick. And Tom said, leave him alone. Uh, don't bother him because he has a finding which can be very, very interesting. He's found a place in the mountains where a Bigfoot comes to defecate, to use as a toilet. And most people would think that's strange. But I've been living, working in the jungles of North India, and there's an animal which does that, and that's the rhino. The rhino always comes to the same place every day and uses it for defecation, uses it as a toilet, same place every day, until it gets too high, then he moves to another place. So could a Bigfoot do that? I thought so, yes. So eventually we got uh, Tipmuth to come up to Northern California, meet with Tom and I in camp, and he and Tom went up by car to look at the site where there was a pile of feces. And while they were there, hiding in the bushes, 
after a long, hot trek in there, looking at the sides, and Tom was quite excited about this. He thought, my goodness, a pile of feces. Out of the bushes comes an elderly Cooper Indian with a pony, and he immediately sees Tom and Tippers squatting in the corner and says, what are you doing here? And they say to him, what are you doing there? And then Tom got up and in a very friendly fashion went over and shook the old man's hand and said, what are you doing here? And the old man said, I'm gathering herbs. I come to this place every six months to gather herbs. Uh, you see the pile of feces there? That's from my pony, where I tie it to a tree. So rather embarrassing for Titmus, we came back to camp. He and Tom did. He got in his car, and we never saw him again. So that's the story of Bob Titmus and the uh, so-called Bigfoot toilet. <laughs> that one always kills me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so... Bigfooting, uh, it always seems to bring out some some fantastic stories from time to time, and that one I, I just love. Um, so do you have anything specific that you'd like to address uh, with regards to your research? Um, you're still active, I understand, somewhat in the coast range uh, near where you live in Pacific City. Yes, I'm active with um, one friend to the extent of having motion sensor cameras out um, on a on a basis on a, what we call a geotime basis. In other words, we have cameras uh, where there's been a sighting at a particular time. So the sighting there in July, we'll have cameras there in July. Sighting there in September, we'll have cameras there in September. In that we think these creatures may move around in search of food and perhaps come and then come to the same area again at the same time as Europe. So we have cameras out at this time. Otherwise, um, that's all we do. I've run two big projects. I've been in and out for years and years and years. And um, if someone were to offer me a project now and put up a million dollars, I wouldn't take it. I feel sort of I've put enough time in. And I'm occupying myself with one or two other things. So that's where we stand right now. Motion sensor cameras, they're very good. We have thousands of pictures of deer, of elk, of um, uh, bear, uh, porcupines, small animals, uh, mountain lion, thousands of pictures, and they're excellent pictures. So with a bit of luck, we might get a picture of a Bigfoot. Yeah, that's that's kind of uh, the standard operating procedure for us as well at the Conservancy. And, and we've had cameras out for... Uh, I think one time we had nine cameras out uh, through the winter over a period of eight months before we were even able to get back into this area to retrieve them. And like yourself, we've got all kinds of great uh, wildlife footage. I set all mine on uh, on video. Um, and we keep doing this both in the coast range and, and the Cascades. We have certain areas that we believe are, are pretty active. Um so I hate to jump around a bit, but tell us a little bit about uh, your concession that you started in, was it the Dalles, Oregon, in the 70s? Uh, concession? What do you mean by concession? Well, you, a museum of sorts or a uh, um, Yes. Was that Hood River or the Dalles? I was off in Washington for a year. Um, on a new project, and then we found out that the man who was principally behind the whole thing, no names, had faked everything. The project came to an end. So I moved down 
to northern Oregon, a place called Dells. I heard there was sighting just near the Dells. That's the name. It means, it means stepping stones from small islands in the Columbia River. So I spent some time there, and um, one of the things we did, we, we, we bought a trailer and put up an exhibit. And we had some nice things in there, photographs of footprints, plaster casts. And the purpose of that was to bring people in and get them to talk, especially about sightings. A lot of people are shy. They're talking about their sightings. They're, they're worried about ridicule. So people came in and talked, and that was the whole purpose of the exhibits that I had in the Dallas for one year. Then I closed it down, and we moved on to other things. Yeah, I do recall uh, uh, seeing uh, articles about that, and, and you've kind of uh, made a name for yourself there uh, in the Dallas and then moved on to other projects. So we don't have a whole lot of time left, but I would like to ask you um, – well, I can think of a million things. Um, the uh, the story about the Ivan Marks film. Were you, are you comfortable talking about it? I yes, that was certainly, kind of, certainly. Oh, this I was remember Ivan Coatville? Marks. Um, this, this was Coldwell. Um, or Bothell. Yes north of there, a tiny place of a few houses called Evans. I was in New York, and an old friend of Tom Slick's called me um, um, and said, um, I'm very interested in starting another Bigfoot project. Are you free? And I was free. I'd come to the end of my hunting. Uh, I finished that in 1970, packed up. And I said, I'm free. He said, would you go out there and have a look at a piece of film made by a fellow called Ivan Marks? So I did. Flew out there and I looked at it. And he showed it to us on a 16-millimeter projector. He showed us it again and again and again. We ran it again. It was very good. And it showed a Bigfoot walking away, a supposed Bigfoot, walking away, limping, with what looked like an injured heel, and um, maybe 20 seconds. And then he said he dropped the... The, um, the movie camera, which saw the strap around his neck, pulled out a still camera and took six pictures, and then it disappeared. And that was it. So I went out there, and he showed me this, and he said he would give us a copy of the original, original to keep in the safe. And so we did that, sent it down to Los Angeles. The man's name down there was C.B. Wood. And he put it in the safe and kept it. And the project started off. And slowly... Over the course of three months, this is 1971, January, March, uh, suspicions began to grow about the way Marx was behaving. He'd go out and tell us he'd found footprints, and then he couldn't remember where they were. Then one day, the editor of the local newspaper called me and said, come down and see me. We had taken still pictures of the movie footage. And he had blown these up and was comparing them with the still pictures that Mark said he took with a still camera at the same time. He said, look, the shadow angles were different. The still pictures were taken at a different time. So we went to Mark's house next morning, four of us at six o'clock. He was gone into his car, off to California. We never saw him again. In other words, the film was faked. So that was it. That's how we found out. Norm Davis, the editor of the Colville News, I think it was, made the discovery. 
And I believe he absconded with uh, a check as well. No, he was not true. We paid him $300 a month. I think I just paid him. No, he didn't steal any money or anything like that. He was just taking things. And when we discovered him, he picked up news. We would be there at 6 next morning knocking on his door. And he lived in a shack. The door was open. There was stuff all over the yard. And he had a Volkswagen. He jumped in that, took, took off for California. And rather like uh, Bob Titmus, we never saw him again. Crazy, crazy. Yeah, there's all kinds of, of actors in this uh, this game of Bigfooting, and, and uh, you never know what you're going to find. Um, while I have you, um, is there uh, some place uh, that people can go to learn more about uh, your work or uh, perhaps an email address where they could write to you if they have any questions, Peter? They can email me if they wish. My email is very simple. It's peterburn at AOL. I sell my books myself. I sell them on Amazon. Books are for sale. And um, they can reach me that way. And I'm happy to talk with people. Uh, peterburn at AOL. So that's how I can be contacted. Fantastic. I appreciate that. So I'm I'm looking forward to uh, seeing you here in a couple of weeks at our annual gathering. Uh, and, yes, uh, that's right, yes. I, or you're I going to be there. Wonderful, wonderful. Yes, of course. Uh, so that should be so great closing, to get the gang back together. Sure. Closing with one, with one thing, let me close. Um, the sightings and footprint findings seem to be growing less and less every year. Back in the 60s, we had footprint finds almost every year, a sighting every two or three years. Now for long periods, six, eight years, a lot of this was um, um, we gained a lot of enthusiasm from an extraordinary sighting two years ago in, in, in 2019, and we called it the seven-man sighting. And in the coast range here in the Wilson River area, seven loggers, veteran loggers, all working, stop work to see a Bigfoot walking down the road towards them. I know three of the loggers, one personally, all good men, and not visitors, not tourists, but veteran loggers. And seven of them saw it and just made all the same descriptions, seven foot tall, dark brown in color. An extraordinary sighting. And that was June 2019. So they're still out there. So we'll keep on uh, looking and, and you keep up the good work. Uh, it's my hope and prayer that uh, the uh, the truth will come out in your lifetime. Um uh, uh, your efforts are, are greatly appreciated, and I appreciate you personally uh, taking the time this evening to, to speak with me and, and the folks back home. And uh, I think we're going to wrap it up, and uh, you uh, you have yourself a good evening, and we'll see you in a couple weeks. Thank you so much, Sean. I look forward to meeting you at Beachford fairly soon. Thank you. All right, folks. Well, there you have it. Uh, the man, the myth, the legend, Peter Burns. Um, he's 95 years old this year and still going strong. And uh, uh, our thanks to him for his, his service in, in World War II and, and for coming on and, and giving us a shout. That's going to be about it for me uh, this evening. Um, hopefully I'll be able to talk to you again uh, soon. My contact information, if you're interested, I can be reached at 
American Primate at AOL.com. Feel free to send any questions or uh, more to the point if you find some evidence uh, that you'd like us to look at. Uh, please definitely give us a shout. Uh, we take everything serious and, and we keep things confidential. We're just trying to, to get to the truth of, of the matter. I don't believe Bigfoot exists. I know they do. And uh, hopefully soon everybody will get that, that evidence. Thanks again for joining me on Living Large, Bigfoot in America. Good night.